Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is right on 7.30, and, of course, that's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, of course, we have to welcome back Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, everybody out there. And I think it's actually going to be a good morning. Well, it's getting lighter. Virginia yes. and I both remarked on it. Oh, yes, yes. The days are lengthening at Thank last. Thank goodness. So, yes, it's been... Quite a long and cold winter so far, and I'm sure there's going to be more. But it was funny, actually, speaking of cold winters, uh, at our local Hort Society meeting the other night, I decided to ask people whether they thought it was one of the coldest winters they could remember. And at least half the audience put their hands up. That's how they felt about it. Yes. Uh, that, you know, it really was a seriously cold winter. Uh, and then I told them about the winter we had at Mount Macedon when I was 10. <laughs> Where we had, well, we had a series of snowfalls over about three weeks. Right. It just kept building on top of each other, so it didn't melt away like it would normally do at Macedon. Uh, And in between, we had heavy frosts, uh, which sort of froze it all to the ground. Yep. And as a 10-year-old, I went barefoot ice skating on the local reservoir. Good goose. (laughs) When I got home, it's the only time I can really remember my mother giving me a real cuff around the ear uh, because she was so horrified when she realised what I'd been up to and how I could have easily sort of fallen in. in. Uh, I think in in absolute sheer panic, she hit me. (laughs) Um, And, um, yeah, but there was was icicles hanging off things. It was like Christmas decorations and stuff everywhere. And on the frozen ice, there were there were snow dro- flakes that had expanded out to show their shape, you know, how, the, oh, the shape wow. of the snowflake. I still remember that. I also remember the frozen possums inside the oh. uh, ice and oh. all sorts of weird stuff. But, yeah, that was the coldest winter at Mount Macedon, certainly in my wow. lifetime, okay. which is getting surprisingly long. Um, <laughs> but anyhow, so, yeah, so, but it has been a cold winter. And have you had some snow? We've had a few flurries, and certainly further up the hill above my nursery, there's been sort of little bits of snow settling for a few hours and stuff, yep. but nothing that's gone on for any length of time. Okay. And, and I must say, I don't actually miss it uh, if we don't get a proper dump where it settles, because it's just a nuisance when yes. you're trying to run a business. I mean, nobody comes in to buy plants when they're covered in snow. <laughs> So you make no money on a day when there's snow on the ground. Exactly. And, in fact, you're probably better to close because you get lots of people who come rushing in because you've got pristine snow and they walk straight through your garden beds because they don't know of they're course. there. Of course, of <laughs> course. And so it's it's fraught <clears throat> when you have a proper dump of snow. So I don't look forward to it. And, of course, things break and shade houses get heavy and, you know, it's all sort of a bit iffy. Yes. Yes, I'm not mad keen on it. So, okay. Yeah, hopefully not. Okay. <laughs> We must say a good morning to uh, Graham Sargent from Silky's Rose Farm at Clombenane. Good morning, Graham. Good morning, Pam. We haven't had that amount of snow out at our place. I'm no. pleased to hear <laughs> it. But the wood ducks are nesting already, which is which is interesting, and of course signs of an early spring, eh? Mm-hmm. Which is good. And um, there's a lot of frog activity too, which is mm. really good. So yes, uh, ours are croaking mad- madly at home. Yeah. There's lots of. Frogs out and about. Mm. They're enjoying the dampness, of course, as well. Yeah. Seeing as we've had some rain. Some of the forecast material um, from up north, and I follow that through the land uh, paper, they're talking about a five-year drought coming. Mm. So um, it could be an interesting time. But roses will get through a five-year drought. No trouble. (laughs) (laughs) You sound so cocky about that. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, well, we've got to be positive about it, Steve. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah, that is fair enough. Good morning, Virginia Haywood. Good morning. My garden's looking absolutely beautiful. It, is, it does winter very, very well. The thing I remember about snow when I lived in London was that I would think it was wonderful. It snowed very rarely in the 20 years I was there. But the effect afterwards when all the dog poo would defrost. Oh, oh my goodness. It was horrible. Yeah. yeah. Defrosting wasn't good. And def- actually just melting snow is not good because mm. everything turns to slush. I don't mm, know yes. what it is about snow, but you can have heavy rain and things are sort of all right, but you have a heavy snowfall and when it melts, everything just turns to this dreadful slush. Yes. Well, it's you awful. Can, you can imagine the dog poo. I mean, they pick up more in London nowadays, but back then they certainly didn't pick terribly much up. Mm. It wasn't a good a good sight. Yeah. No. Okay. Oh, well, that's completely put me off that sort of <laughs> wintry feel. All right, we've all voted no for snow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can live without snow. It's, it's fine if you're sitting in a chalet looking out over somewhere drinking glue vine. It's also very nice when you're looking at it on the hills. Mm. Yes, mm. it's nice looking at the Alps if they're snow-covered, mm. but yeah, uh, yeah. you're not up there. Yeah, no, preferably not. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, All right, well, let's move on. We have uh, a few announcements to get through, so I'll get started on those right now. First up uh, today uh, is the second day of the Waverley Bonsai Show. This is being held at Mount Waverley Community Centre, 47 Miller Crescent in Mount Waverley. It opens today at 10am, running through until 4 o'clock this afternoon. There'll be demonstrations, displays, trade table um, if you'd like more information, you can contact Bruce and his number is 98028529. Now, next weekend, also down at Mount Waverley Community Centre, is the <coughs> Waverley Garden Club and Camellia's Victoria Show. Now, this is running on the Saturday from uh, 1 till 5, on the Sunday from 10 through till 4.30, as I say, that's uh, next weekend, both Saturday and Sunday. Admission for that is $5 adults, children are free, and it features the Victorian Camellia Championships and the Waverley Floral Art Championships as well. If you'd like more information, you can contact Linda. Her number is 0412 914 <clears throat> Now, um, coming up on Tuesday, the 11th of August is the Winter Lecture and AGM of the Australian Garden History Society. Now, uh, they're going, the speaker is going to be Sarah Wood. She's been uh, engaged in a photographic project of the Avenues of Honour, and she'll be giving a talk about that project. Now, it's being held in the Mueller Hall uh, at the Royal Botanic Gardens, Melbourne, in Birdwood Avenue there. 6 o'clock for drinks and nibbles, 6.30 for the annual general meeting, and then 6.45 for the lecture. Uh, Now, cost for members of the Australian Garden History Society, $20. Non-members, $25. Students, $10. And uh, also coming up from from that same organisation, the Australian Garden History Society, they're going to be running um, a working bee out at Mount Bunanyong um, on Saturday the 15th of August. So you can come along to see early spring flowering bulbs and enjoy one of the oldest historic gardens in Victoria. Now, August's time for rose pruning, so anyone who's 
uh, who's keen on getting stuck into that. Uh, there'll be plenty of jobs there. Bring along um, saws, long-handled clippers and secateurs ready to go. Uh, more gentle treatment is required on some of the perennials, so they suggest kneeling pads as an optional extra. And they recommend uh, clothing including sturdy boots and woolen hats. Now, you int- if you're interested in going along to this, contact Fran. Her number is 98531369 and uh, you need to contact her by Thursday the 13th of August and carpooling is also encouraged for that one. Now, on the 15th of August as well, the West Brunswick Community Garden is celebrating three years with a community dance. Now, this sounds like a bit of fun. It's celebrating three successful years with a midwinter community dance and fundraiser. Now, it's, being, it's starting at 7.30. As I said, it's Saturday the 15th of August. It's being held at Our Lady Help of Christians Church Hall, which is 49 Nicholson Street in East Brunswick. Uh, there's going to be entertainment with uh, two uh, live groups, Bohemian Nights and also Klezmeritus, uh, which play a mix of gypsy, klezmer, Greek and Middle Eastern music. And there's going to be an experienced dance caller as well, which will be teaching everyone the dance steps. No previous experience needed. So there'll be line dances, square dances, circle dances and a lot more. So uh, it's definitely a night for joining in and having a bit of fun. Now the entrance charge is $25, um, concession of $15, children $10, Families, $50. There'll be finger food, tea and great coffee provided free. BYO, soft drinks or alcohol. And everybody is welcome. All profits will go to the development of the community garden, which is maintained and supported by volunteers from around the local area. Now, if you'd like further information, you can contact Margaret. Her number is 0412 I'll repeat that. It's 0412-088 or four, sorry, 461. Um, and uh, booking is through uh, trybooking.com.au. The number you need is 146694. Okay. Now, um, coming up. Uh, the next talk being given by, uh, well, for the Friends of uh, Cranbourne uh, Botanic Gardens is going to take place at 2 o'clock on Sunday the 16th of August. That's next Sunday. And David Carolee will present a talk on where to for climate change. Now, David Carolee is Chair of Atmospheric Sciences, School of Earth Sciences, University of Melbourne, He's regarded as one of the most highly competent Australian scientists involved in the study of climate change. He's an excellent communicator and uh, makes sure to make this topic very interesting and relevant. Uh, Now, the talk will be held in the Australian Garden Auditorium down at Cranbourne. Cost is $20. And uh, for bookings or to find out more information, you can phone 8774-2483. Just a couple more for me to get through. Uh, Also coming up, uh, another AGM. This time it's uh, for Friends of Burnley Gardens. And uh, their speaker is going to be their patron, Dr Greg Moore. He's presenting a talk on dormant buds, trees and gardeners' best friends. Now, it's taking place Wednesday the 19th of August in Quad 6 Classroom at Burnley Campus, 
500 Yarra Boulevard there in Richmond. 7 o'clock for refreshments. The talk commences at 7.30 and uh, that should be a great night. All right, it's uh, high time we invited our listeners to join us. If you have a gardening question this morning, we do have uh, <coughs> Stephen Ryan, Graham Sargent and Virginia Haywood in the studio this morning. So give us a call, 94190155. That's 94190155. Stephen, last time was your first week back after you'd had a trip to New Caledonia. It certainly was. We never got round. We were so busy. We never got round <laughs> to even talking about it. Yeah. And I know you went there specifically to uh, look at some of the local flora. Well, that was, that was the plan, and, yes. and, and it sort of happened that way. Okay. I have to say, New Caledonia, for anybody who hasn't been is quite an expensive place to travel, so keep that in mind if you decide to go. Um, and uh, I have to say the towns and, well, the one city really, New Mia, uh, they're pretty run down, pretty ordinary, sort of, you know, it's it's not the prettiest place as far as the uh, human landscape is concerned. Mm-hmm. The beaches aren't as good as we have, so if you're thinking about pina coladas and palm trees, forget it. Uh, um, some of the beaches, you have to walk half a mile before you actually get your private bits wet. Right. Uh, you know, it's just so shallow, it just yes. goes out forever. Okay. Um, and so, but that wasn't the reason we went, so that was fine by us, it didn't yep. matter. Uh, we went to see the plants, and, and New Caledonia is a really interesting place because it's actually, although people don't realise it's not a, um, a coral atoll or anything like that, it's actually part of the old Gondwana. Right. So it's split off many, many millions of years ago uh, from the rest of Gondwana. And it isolated itself quite early and its flora has become quite unique. Mm. And it's actually the epicentre for some genera of the Gondwana sort of groups. Okay. So, for instance, take the agathus, the cowrie pines. In Australia, we have three species. Uh, New Zealand has one. Uh, there's a couple of sort of in a couple of the other islands, Fiji and Vanuatu have one, and what have you. New Caledonia has seven or eight. Right. Uh, the same with the Oricarias, the monkey puzzle group, and the bunya pine group. Mm. You know, in Australia we have. Well, I guess if you call Norfolk Island part of Australia, we have sort of two. Um, uh, New Caledonia has eight or nine. Right. Species. So there's more species of both of those genuses in New Caledonia than anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And it also has lots of isolated plants that are, in fact, quite unique. Uh, it has the world's only parasitic conifer, a thing called Parasitaxis, that is a parasite on another rare conifer. So it's in a bit of an ecological dead end, I think. Oh. Uh, and it looks, and unfortunately, I went looking for it, but I never found it on the trip. We went into several places where I actually found the host tree, okay. but I couldn't find Parasitaxis, unfortunately. But it, from the pictures I've seen of it, it's sort of a shrub that gets to a, a metre and a half, two metres tall, which is quite large for a complete parasite, I might add. Mm. Um, and it looks like sort of brownie, chocolatey coral. It's okay. got this sort of corally, sort of weird shape to it. Uh, and it lives on another conifer that only comes from New Caledonia. And it grows in these incredibly dark forests because it has absolutely no chlorophyll. So it grows in the same places as fungi would grow. Mm. So it's quite remarkable. And there's other connections that are really interesting. I went looking for a plant called Xeronema morii, uh, and there's a New Zealand relative of it that grows on the Poor Knights Islands, uh, and only on the Poor Knights Islands, so it doesn't grow on mainland New Zealand. Um, and it has these thick, fleshy leaves that could look like a succulent kangaroo paw, actually, to look at the foliage, but not terribly tall, um, and bright, bright green. And then it sends up a flower spike that, at the top of the flower spike, it goes at right angles, and then it has a brilliant red bottle brush flower that sits on the top of that right-angled stem. 
And I've seen the New Zealand one in flower while I was in New Zealand. In fact, the last trip I did to New Zealand, I saw it as a garden plant quite regularly, particularly in the northern parts of New Zealand because it's not that cold hardy. Mm. Uh, so I wanted to see the New Caledonian Xeronema. And I might add, you can't tell a difference between them unless you know which country you're in. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> they look so similar to me. I can't see the difference. I think the New Caledonian one might be fractionally shorter as a mature plant. Uh, and a friend of mine who's grown both reckons that the New Caledonian one flowers more regularly for him, but that could just be in his garden. That's right. Um, but, yeah, so I wanted to see that, which I managed to find the plant but not in flower. Oh. Uh, and you found it right up on the top of these wet mountains, and that was that was one of the interesting things about New Caledonia. You know, you sort of think of Pacific Islands and you don't think mountainous. And although the mountains aren't seriously high, like, you know, they're not thousands of metres up, because they virtually start at uh, sea level, because uh, the island's quite narrow, they look quite substantial. Mm. And they certainly take some time to get to the top of. I mean, the highest one, Mount Panay, is uh, only about 1,600 metres, I think, something like that. Uh, and But you... It, that's a two-day trek in and out again. Um, we went to the top of several other mountains that weren't quite so high, but you could do them in the sort of the one day. Yep. Because otherwise you've got to have tents and you've got to have guides and yes. all that other stuff. So we did the ones that we could manage on our own. Uh, and sometimes it was a seven or an eight-hour walk to get in and out again. Mm. Are some of them volcanic? Uh, they're, they're more sort of um, um, pushed up out of the sea-type mountains. They're not sort of volcanic type mountains from what I can work out but the island itself has got a really interesting um, geography because it's uh, it's full of metals and minerals and things so there's these soils that are full of nickel and uh, all sorts of quite toxic things in fact Mm. that many plants have had to evolve to grow on so there's quite unique plants that grow in some of those serpentine and, and mineral rich areas of the island, which is rather unfortunate for some of those plants because, of course, a lot of those areas are being mined. Yes. So there's some huge nickel mines you know, right. in New Caledonia. That's where most of the wealth, if there is any wealth, is coming from, I guess. Mm. Um, and um, so the plants were really interesting. I, I did enjoy them. Um, we didn't see anything on mass in flower, so I had a sense that we were in a bit of a a low period, but I found lots of individual plants in flower, so I covered a lot of the things that I would have liked to have seen as individuals, which was quite good. So I guess if you were to look through all my images that we've taken, and there's quite a lot of them, um, you would think we saw a lot of plants, and we did individually as we went round. There was the local grevilleas, the local melaleucas, the local calistamins, so there's a a, a serious sort of Australian connection. They've they've also got um, casuarinas and things like that as well, Um, uh, and yet they've got several species of nothophagus, the southern beaches, mm-hmm. but their southern beaches have leaves the size of a laurel. Right. Whereas virtually all of the other southern beaches have quite small leaves. Yes. I mean, nothophagus morii from New South Wales has about the biggest leaf, and that would be nearly an inch in the old measurements. Mm. Um, but these things had leaves that were three and four inches long. They didn't look like anything like nothophagus <laughs> to me. Okay. Um, and to visit, there's one giant cowry in the forest there that you have to go and visit in the um, uh, Riviera Bleu area, which is really a beautiful national park. And so they've got this giant cowrie in the forest that was actually too big to cut down. Oh, good. Um, so that's why it's <laughs> I'm still... I'm so pleased. Yeah, well, I think it is as well. Um, uh, it's a bit like visiting the cowries in New Zealand where, you know, you've got the iconic one or two that are really, really big, the, yep. the, the forest giants. Well, there's one of their cowries that probably isn't quite up to the, to the scale of the New Zealand ones for size, but a 
pretty impressive tree. Okay. And there's palms of all sorts, uh, palm genera that grow nowhere else but in New Caledonia. Mm -hmm. There's one, and I can't remember the names of all the palms, I'm sorry, but there's one that the new fronds come up and they're blood red. Oh, wow. The new fronds, just stunning. That would be a fantastic garden plant oh, if we could get hold well, of it. I'm not sure it'll grow this far south. No. I reckon it'll be a bit cold down here for most of the New Caledonian palms. Yep. But it is really interesting that for an island that sort of doesn't really get any snow or frost or any of that sort of thing, it can get cool, but it doesn't really get cold. Um, I'm growing at Mount Macedon several New Caledonian plants okay. with minimal protection. I mean, I've got uh, two of their cowries, uh, one of which seems to be completely hardy. Uh, funnily enough, Agathus Montana, uh, so it must come from the highest mountains in New Caledonia, uh, and also uh, Agathus uh, morii I'm growing as well, and they've come through two, three winters now. Okay. In fact, better than Agathus robusta, our Australian yep. main cowrie. Yep. So they seem to be more frost tolerant than that. Uh, I've got Xeronema morii, which has spent two winters outside and survived all right. So it's surprising what we probably could grow. And certainly if you want to see some New Caledonian plants, go and have a look at the Melbourne Botanic Gardens. I was just going to say that. <laughs> yeah, they've got a, a section of New Caledonian plants. In some senses, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's got mainly conifers. Uh, there's not a lot of other, there's not a lot of the New Caledonian pretties mm. in, in the collection there, yep. unfortunately. I think there's some xerostema there, which is a thing that looks like a, uh, a medrasidrus or um, a eucalypt almost with these yellow stamen flowers and these big glossy bright green leaves which is really lovely um, but yeah it could do with a little bit of a top up of some of the really pretty stuff that comes from New right. Caledonia but it is a remarkable flora I mean it's got something like 80% endemic mm. um, and almost the rest of it is at least native um, and, um, and it's got these weird connections with Australia and the other Pacific Islands and New Guinea and, and South America um, so it's, it's got all those Gondwana connections so it is a really fascinating flora. Um, the treks and walks that we did were fabulous. Um, I was quite pleased at my fitness, I have to say. And getting older, one wonders whether one will manage. But I, I, was, uh, I surprised myself because some of it was really hard walking. Okay. Um, there's a mountain in a tribal area called Ma uh, Mont Mou, um, and the tracks aren't maintained in there. The tribal groups just, you can go in and walk up there, but they don't do anything with it. And the tracks have become so eroded that you've virtually got to climb up eroded bits to get to the next bit of right. the track, and it's all mud. Oh. And uh, we got to the top of Mount Moo, uh, and we got almost down again before it got dark. Mm. Almost. Almost. <laughs> so that was interesting. We'd met a young Frenchman who was going to climb Mount Moo as well, uh, who happened to have a torch, fortunately, because Craig and I didn't think take a torch with us because we didn't think we were going to be out after dark. Yes. Uh, so we had to scramble down the mountainside in the dark with one torch between three <laughs> of us. Uh, so we had some adventures yes. uh, as well. I managed to get the car bogged in a mangrove swamp. and mm -hmm. uh, You've done that on a few occasions. Well, no, that's only my Steve. second time. No, um, but they tend to be a bit traumatic yeah. when you do it. Yeah, well, it was <laughs> well, the last one was. <laughs> yeah, well, the last one was worse. We had to stay with the car overnight. At least this time that we got rescued before, uh, before we had to stay with it overnight. Oh, good. Um, but um, yeah, it was it was quite exciting, and um, there was enough to keep us entertained for the, just over three weeks. We were a bit nervous about it because it's not a big place, 
But by the time you sort of drive backwards and forwards across the island and, and loop around and do all the roads, and we yep. did virtually all of them, um, it filled our time quite nicely. Well, if and, you're spending full days on treks, oh, yeah. you and know. That was it, you yep. know, being able to spend the whole day. So you'd find a, a hotel or something somewhere and you'd stay for a day or two and then you'd go out and do treks. Yep. And certainly down in the south where Riviera Blue and Chutes uh, de la Madeleine, which are the two main national parks on New Caledonia are, the plant life, it's all in that Nicolae area, so it's all full of weird plants that only grow there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we stayed in the in the Jeet, we stayed in for about four nights, maybe five, because it took us all that time to do the different bits. Yep. Um, and some of it was just driving. You could just drive around parts of it, and others were, were treks and walks, and it was remarkable. Mm. So... So, yeah, from a plant perspective, New Caledonia is really quite something. But if you want a good beach, we've got them here. Okay. <laughs> does, so. it, does it have that eucalypt that grows outside Australia? No. No, it doesn't have any native eucalypts, um, but it certainly has its own grevilleas and its own malaleucas and callistamins. That's assuming you are, sh- you are happy to accept that malaleucas and callistamins are different genera because word has it that somebody's trying to lump them together. Okay. So Callistamin could disappear right? as a genus. That's rather a pity. Well, Roger doesn't believe it's right, so it, there will be a backlash <laughs> <laughs> on that one for sure. Uh, he said there's one Callistamin that probably should come out and go on its own okay? because uh, it's, it's got characteristics that are different to the others. And I think he said it was Viminalis. Um, uh, but Roger tends to think that if anything, Melaleuca might be better split up into two or three different genuses. So. <laughs> oh, well, it's all on for young and old at the we moment. We await it's, the botanist decisions. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Well, we've just got to grin and bear those things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's a good trip, um, but I've done New Caledonia now. I don't yes, have to. Yes, you don't need yeah, to go back. No, I, I would perhaps think about it if I could be assured of seeing a Parasitaxis, uh, which we didn't see, but that's probably the only thing that would drag me back to New Caledonia now. Fair enough. Um, so there you go. So that okay. was our trip, it's sort of in a nutshell. Wonderful. <laughs> okay. And um, what was the food? Good. Oh, look, the food French. was pretty good. Uh, yeah. they're, they're certainly, like, uh, you know, some of the smaller towns and things you went to, it was hard to get a really good meal. Uh, but in Umea, there was some very good restaurants and things. Uh, but they certainly weren't cheap. I mean, they were easily as expensive as the restaurants we would have here yeah. uh, and possibly more so in some cases. But, yeah, we found a couple of really nice restaurants where we had some lovely meals. Mm. And about the only food type that I can think of that seemed to be cheaper there than what we'd pay for it here was crayfish. Oh. So yes. unfortunately, I had to eat some of that as well. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. how, how would you describe the climate, Mister? Well, when we were there, it's still winter mm. in New Caledonia, but being further north, um, I mean, we had our cool days. We got seriously wet a few times when we were trekking. Uh, uh, there was one, well, I think it was Mount Montmoo, actually, where my boots were so full of water you could hear it squelch every step you took. And, and when they say wet to the skin, I was quite literally, literally wet to the skin. There was absolutely no point in wearing a raincoat or, or anything by that point. I was completely saturated. So, so you know, I, I can't remember us ever being cold per okay. se, uh, but there were cool days and, mm. and what have you in, uh, in parts of New Caledonia. And, and I certainly don't remember a day when it was stinking hot. 
Okay. So actually for walking, it was fantastic mm-hmm. because there were coolish days most days. And, of course, when you were in the forests, of course, you had the canopy over you yeah. as well, which kept it a bit cooler. Um, but, yeah, it was lovely for walking. Mm. It was perfect. So, um, yeah, so it wasn't like we were sitting on sort of a hot tropical beach or anything mm. anyway. It was, mm. uh, you know, Craig went <laughs> swimming a few times or at least paddling. Um, uh, I didn't go in at all really except to paddle on the edges because I couldn't see the point. It wasn't warm enough yeah. for me to <laughs> want to go swimming. What about local fauna? Therein is a problem. There isn't much. Um, their highlight is to see a bird called a Cujo, Cuji, Cujo, something. Uh, and it's a small dove grey bird, uh, about the size of a magpie, maybe a little bit bigger, flightless, uh, that has a crest on the top of its head that it has sitting down. So unless it gets excited, uh, it just sort of looks like this small grey bird. And they make a big deal about this bird. It's sort of their national emblem bird and all yes, that sort of stuff yes. and it's supposedly really hard to find and to see and all that sort of thing and Craig and I saw them everywhere <laughs> <laughs> well when I say everywhere we were in one forest where we were walking and there I don't know whether you can call them flocks when they're small groups of birds on the ground but anyhow there was about nine of them right. that were all fishing around for worms in the leaf litter and we saw one pull this huge big long worm out that must have been over a foot long and then it walked behind a tree and we thought, oh, that's odd. It has, didn't just eat it. And so we scrambled up, and there's a tiny little nestling sitting ah. in a little hollow in the base of the tree, <laughs> this little tiny thing that was dark brown with a few little sort of fawny-coloured spots on it. You would not know it was there. It was so well camouflaged right. if it hadn't moved. Yep. And so we've even seen a baby one. <laughs> One assumes that they're very threatened by wild cats and things uh, like that. Yes, they are struggling a bit in the wild mm. because of being uh, ground-dwelling and and, yes. and cats and dogs and other things having come into – and rats and things like that as well in mm. New Caledonia. Rats are a real problem, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, so they do have some issues with their little native bird. But there's not a sort of – I mean, there's a few reptiles. We saw a few skinks and lizards and things. Uh, I believe there's one snake which is not particularly big or vicious. Um uh, there's a few bats, which we didn't see. Um, I don't think there's much else, to okay. be perfectly honest. So, so it's not rattling with weird but animals. It's not necessarily surprising. I know mm. when, um, before humans arrived in Hawaii, there were only two mammals. One was a seal and one was a bat, mm. i.e. Mm. they both got there by water or air. Yeah. And there are only two mammals. Yeah. Okay. Well, and the same yeah. with New Zealand when you think about it. It had no browsing mammals. It had mm. bats and it uh, yes. and would have had seals and things as well. Um, but its biggest uh, animals were the giant birds. Mm. Yes. You know, so, so a lot of those islands didn't have a high fauna level. Mm. But, yeah, the little keju is, is quite cute. Um, don't get me wrong, but it's it's not... Exciting in lots of ways. Yes. It's this little bit, and, and if it feels threatened, it does stick its crest up and it puts its wings out that have got sort of darker blacky grey bandings on them, which you only see when the wings go out. Okay. Um, and because they're grand dwelling and you walk along a track, you can often frighten one because you don't even know it's there. Mm. And so we had a couple of them do that to us. Uh, and certainly the, the mother or father that was feeding the baby felt we got a bit close at one point and was doing the threatening thing as well. Right. Um, Listeners, and, it's a pity you can't see what's going yeah, on. Yeah, I'm flapping my <laughs> wings around as we speak. Uh, yeah, don't tie my arms down because I stopped talking. <laughs> but, uh, look, it was an interesting little bird and everybody's very excited by it in New Caledonia. But, you know, I think we've got more exciting 
flora, fauna here, actually, okay. I have to say. But there you go. Okay, excellent. Oh, we've got a... We've got our first caller. We're going to go to Robert, who's down on Phillip Island. Good morning, Robert. Hello. How are you this morning? We're well. Oh, beautiful morning. I, I, I've got the wood heater going. Right. The, I can see the, the coals glowing and the kettle's on, ready to come to the boil. Ah. And I've uh, got the teapot ready. Yes. And not those uh, tasteless tea bags with the real tea leaves. <laughs> Good for you. And uh, everything's good. I got up early this morning and I had the pleasure of hearing some beautiful mopokes. Ah. Oh, gorgeous. About yes. six o'clock and there must be a few of them there and calling to each other. It's a gorgeous sound, a mopoke, through the night mm. or early in the morning. Fantastic. Yeah, so uh, anyway, I had a bit of good luck last week. A friend of mine gave me a couple of ducks. The foxes got in and got his duck, so he said, uh, I'll trade you a couple of ducks for some dahlia bulbs. So I said, OK. <laughs> I home, like that sort of barter system. <laughs> but at home I came with Mr Duck. Off right. with his head, plucked him in the backyard, and then through the week I had the most magnificent roast duckling you could think of. <laughs> good for you. Oh, beautiful. Look, what I was going to ask... Little linaria, mm-hmm. is it a bit early to put seed in at the moment? I've had a bit of trouble with it not doing well. Have I planted seed too early? I wouldn't have thought so. Linaria is one of those things that I would just sow when I got the seed and allow it to come up at its own. In fact, I do that with most seed. People seem to think you have to save your seed till the spring. But if you really think about it, when something sheds its seed, it tends to shed it in the autumn. Where does it go? It goes straight to the ground into what's hopefully going to be its seed bed. And it sits there probably under a little bit of leaf litter, which is what normally happens in the wild. Uh, And then it germinates at its own leisure when it wants to in the spring or in the autumn, depending on what it is. I mean, things like um, peony poppies and things tend to come up in the autumn. Some things come up in the spring. Uh, So I tend to sow when the seed's ripe. I don't hold a lot of seed back unless it's sort of things like vegetable seeds like tomatoes and things that have to be right. sown at a certain time. Yeah, uh, right. But certainly flower seeds and things, I tend to sow them as I get them. Right. Uh, apart from anything else, if I don't, they tend to end up in a paper bag at the back of the cupboard somewhere and I find them 10 years yeah. later. Yes, and the other thing, I grow Canterbury Bells, Yeah, but I, I, I have a bit of problem getting the double. Last year I managed to get, I put about 20 in and I got two out of the 20, yeah. the beautiful purple with the double uh, Canterbury Bell. Uh, was I, this seed you collected yourself, Robert, or is it seed? I got it, some seed. You bought seed or somebody uh, gave you seed? Uh, bought seed. Bought seed. Uh, yeah, in bought seed, I would have thought you should have got a slightly higher proportion because they're supposed to be bred to get that higher proportion of doubles. Although I have to say I'm a, so- I'm a softie for the single Canterbury Bell because I think it has more form to it than the double uh but you know all these things are personal taste and anyhow it takes me back to my childhood because i remember the property opposite us the head gardener there used to grow canterbury bells and i used to trap bees in them pick the flower and then chase his daughter around the garden with them so it has lots of fond memories for me um not uh, so fond for her no no no, she's probably still got a (laughs) traumatized And don't forget the Daffodil uh, Show again, ladies and gentlemen, this year, Friday, September the 11th. Right. Saturday, September the 12th. Sunday, September the 13th. Yep. That's at the Lee and Gather yes. Town Hall. And um, and that must be about its mid-20s year or something? Yeah, or? Yes. Oh, there's some fine growers, and there's some growers up there that uh, are exhibiting a lot of their seedlings. Yeah, which is always interesting to see what people are breeding. Yes. I I got a lot given to me, uh, so I've got about a 1,000 bulbs planted. I'm going out in the backyard now, some of the early ones, 
and some of the colours are just um, exquisite because they're all seedlings. Mm. And so some of these growers, the, the keen ones, they might get 20 new seedlings per year, but they might only keep two. Yes. If that, sometimes. Yes. Um, I've got a grower in my area who's been breeding daffodils for year and if, if or for years, and if Fred's named two oh. or three, I'd be surprised, and he's grown hundreds of thousands of them. That, mm. that man can ha- have colours that all the other daffodil growers marvel at how he gets the colour. Oh, yes. Yeah, he's remarkable, but he's very selective. So there's paddocks all around the Macedon Ranges where Fred's seedlings have gone in and he walks away and leaves the paddocks full of daffodils and just takes one or two bulbs out of it that he wants for his breeding. Yes, Mm. but he he seems to be able to get reds and other colours more Mm. vivid than most breeders can do. He, He must be a marvel at what he does. I take some credit because he comes and gets pollen from my Narcissus cyclaminius every year. Oh, does so, he? of course, it's got all to do with me. Oh, great. <laughs> yes. well, well, thanks very much. And yeah, and look, I, I was going to say about the Canterbury Bells, though. Um, if you're determined to get more doubles, then you're probably better to collect your own seed, but it would mean right. culling all your singles before oh, right. they can cross-pollinate back with your doubles. Right. Uh, yeah. And so you need to just keep your doubles and just keep keeping your doubles and discarding all your singles if you're going to try and right. breed up a reasonably stable strain of double Canterbury Bell. Yes. Now, next week I, I've got a couple of rabbit burrows I uh, have to do and I'm going to acquire a nice pair of rabbits, so I'll be, I'll be having roast rabbit next Saturday night for tea. Fantastic. See ya. Good Bye-bye. for you, Robert. Bye. I like a man who's self-sufficient. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, that number, if you'd like to uh, join us this morning, 94190155. Graham, you've brought in a rose. Let's well, have talking, a chat about just it. Just talking about daffodils, um, yes. Pam. You've, you've dabbled I'm, with some daffodils to breeding them, haven't had, you? Yeah, I had a, had, a, had a play. My younger son, Ben, shows me how to pollinate them, though. He, he showed me when he was eight years of age. Yeah, this is easy. <laughs> okay. So you had the sex talk in reverse, horticulturally right. speaking. <laughs> yes. Um, I I did hear a rumour that they've got an all red daffodil, and I haven't as yet seen it. And I know Fred Cock, Fred Silcock was very close to getting there, and I believe that there were some bulbs given out this this um, this season from a, from a daffodil grower who had recently passed away. And that's as much as I know about it. So um, I'm, I'm a bit intrigued to know if anybody out there in, in, in the listening land knows about an all-red daffodil, mm. which would be rather I'm fascinating. I'm not sure I approve. See, I don't approve of the all-blue rose either, but that's just me. Stephen. I mean, it's like, I, I, who likes pink trumpet daffodils? I can't bear them. They look, they look fleshy. Mm. There's something decidedly animalistic about a pink trumpet daffodil. So I'm not sure that I'd agree with the red one. I'll tell you what I want, though, and I keep telling Freddie he's got to breed one, is an all-green daffodil. All-green. Yeah, mm. a soft chartreuse green would yes. be lovely. Right. I fancy that. And I reckon it would make a great cut flower, too. It would be very be popular with oh, Well, we've got an almost green rose now, which mm. is St. Patrick. Yeah. But you've got to get it at the right time of the year, though. Oh, so it doesn't sort of – it's not always green. Not green. always green, no. Yeah. no it's green in the cool, real cooler oh, weather. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit like that camellia called souvenir. No, what is it? Um, no. Uh, oh God, it's got a great big long name, and the flowers can be purple, a proper purple, but only under certain uh, conditions. Uh, de Herzilia de Frisius de Magalhaes 
is the name of the comedian. Say that again, Steve. No, once is enough. <laughs> uh, and I'm not sure I got it 100% right then. Uh, but it's a big double comedian. You, and, you'd be and, commended that you remember that. It came out else. from somewhere. I don't know where that came from. But anyhow, um, but normally uh, under certain conditions, it's sort of a deep, carmony, pinky red. Yes. But if you get the right weather conditions, it turns purple, okay. which is a colour that you don't expect in a, in a camellia, really, because no. uh, there's sort of the red one, the pink one, and the white one sort of thing, yep. uh, and colours outside of that are fairly rare in camellias. I mean, they've now got the yellow ones, but even some of those are not exactly yellow. They're sort of dirty cream coloured. Yes. Um, but uh, this D. Hertzilia has these amazing flowers that under certain conditions will be purple. So yes. I guess this rose is similar. It needs either a coolish... Yes. period or a warmish period to, to yes. bring up the green. Yeah, it brings out that pigment. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah. And it's one of those things that the breeders, um, breeders always look for when you get something different. And it's the same with fowls. I've got now some, some speckled langshans, which I've never, ever seen before. I've uh, got no idea where they've come from. Just no Out idea. Out of an egg, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and you say, you, you, you really, it's like Palomino horses. How did they first evolve? You know, yes. how did that really happen? And I think that's re- really fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, so a truly green rose that held its colour would be very, very useful, wouldn't it? Yes. Oh, we're still working on the blue one, Stephen. Oh, yes, the bloody blue rose. <laughs> if you really do get a sky blue rose, I'm not sure what attitude I'll have to it, but it, my gut feeling is it shouldn't exist. Most of the blue ones are anything but blue. Well, yes, that's true so far. Well, they uh, tell us that the Japan has it. Yeah, well, time will but, tell. But they're building up, building up stocks. Oh yeah. Oh. But I'm told by the by the, the promoters, um, Anthony Tesla. Anthony says, well, the blue rose we know is only going to account at most for fourteen percent of the market in the world. Mm. So um, he's he's saying, well, is it worth it? I would have thought 14% of the world market would be lovely. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be, pretty, it'd be pretty big. Yeah, it would yeah. be pretty big. I mean, it's not going to compete with Iceberg, quite obviously, but, you know, it, it would still, you know, swallow up a lot of money. It would. Yeah. Yes. Pam, you were asking me about this red yes. rose that oh, I've yes. got here. This is Father's Love, this rose, and it's a, a mid-to-dark red, mm-hmm. and it's a very, very full flower, and it has an absolutely amazing perfume. Okay. And ideal for... for Father's so it's not, got nothing to do with a drunk dad with his belly sticking out with a can of beer next to him in his well, stubbies. In, a, in, a, <laughs> in Australia, that would would, would be okay. Um, and, and it's been put out by the Milan people, of course, the people that bred the famous peach rose. Yes. And believe me, it does have a fantastic perfume. It's well, that's, really good. that's good, isn't it? I yes. mean, so, for so long, roses were bred for flower shape and size. Mm. And in fact, not always for hardiness either, were they? Some, no, of, no. The, some of the breeding programs weren't yes. really good that way. Mm. But if they're thinking about scent again, that's fabulous. Yes. And as Anthony Tesla has also reminded me that so much of the responsibility of the world lays with plant breeders. Mm. And to breed, especially immunity to diseases and immunity mm. to the attack of insects. Mm. And, um, of course, so much of the world is, is um, dependent on, on that with our population increases and our need for food. Mm. Mm. Definitely. Mm. Yeah. So I, I assume this rose is now available out there at, yes, uh, it is. at all good nurseries? <laughs> great, great for Father's Day. Yeah, yeah. obvious for present for Dad. Yes. Yeah. But believe me, it's a big, it's a big, um, like almost a dinner plate size plant, a uh, uh, flower itself. Flower, wow. Yes. Mm. Okay. So a real spectacular one. Yes. Good. And medium, large, uh, what sort of size bush oh, is it going to make? About a metre and, metre and a bit. Oh, so not yes. humongous. No, no, no. Yeah, no, no. Sounds good. Okay. 
Excellent. All right, that number again, 94190155. If you'd like to uh, give us a call and ask the team a gardening question this morning or if you'd like to make a comment of anything we've been talking about. Virginia, you... Yeah, what the hell is in that bag? She's brought in a plastic bag, (laughs) which I have no idea what's inside it. What is in it is some totally stripped lemons. Oh, Oh. and somebody said to me, what on earth has happened to these lemons? Possums. Possums. Oh, yes. really? And they don't. I have got. Mm, yeah, possums are really appealing. <laughs> <laughs> Deep healing. <laughs> that Sorry. Was terrible, Stephen. Yeah. Um, I've got about oh, 16 or 20 lemon trees, and they don't touch my lemons, but these lemons they've completely decimated. Mm. And they do go for. I've got two grapefruits, and they go for my grapefruits mm. all the time. I just find grapefruits on the ground. That have yeah, had peeled, peeled half the, half the skin. It's fascinating that they go for the skin and they're not, not interested in the in the pulp. Mm. Never touch the pulp. Isn't it bizarre? Mm. Yeah. And it's the zest of a lemon you want most of the time in the kitchen. Well, how dare they? Yes. <laughs> well, I don't. I want the juice. But it's interesting. They don't touch my lemons, but they absolutely touch my grapefruits. Whereas obviously this this was from a place in Clifton Hill, and clearly the. People in Clifton Hill have got possums that are quite addicted to their lemons. Yes. Mm. And it, it is an addiction thing in a sense because I find in my own garden that you tend to get an individual possum that will get a taste for something mm. and they'll eat at it and eat at it and eat at it. Now, if that possum disappears or something happens, then the plant will often recuperate even though there's still the same amount of possums in the garden, mm. but they have different tastes for mm. different plants. Mm. At the moment, there's a possum in my garden that's taken an absolute passionate like to my giant tree angelicas. And oh, they're being yeah. the tops are being eaten out of them. Right, a little bugger. Oh, <laughs> well, getting back to lemons, it's very interesting that that they they um, they tell us that for lemons and lemon juice, when it, it gets absorbed into our body, it actually goes alkaline, and we all think yes. it's acid, mm. and that alkalinity is good to balance up the system. So the possums must be needing. Needing a good balance up in their systems too, wherever these. They need a good something, but I'm not sure about a balance. I think they're just plain hungry. Yeah, yeah. yeah but so. it is interesting. They will go to for exotics more than they'll go for native food. Oh, yes. yes. Oh, yes. Definitely. Yeah, yeah undoubtedly. They're, yeah. They're, they're not that interested in gum nuts. No. No. But they do love our fruit and mm. and, and our roses. Yes. yes. Uh, just absolutely adore roses. Yeah. Oh, yes. yes. They are connoisseurs of roses, <laughs> <laughs> funnily enough, and especially if you happen to be silly enough to plant a, a climbing rose against yes. a fence because yes. it just creates a breakfast bar. Yeah, it's just a feast. Yeah, yes. so they can walk along the top and just help themselves. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Oh, well. Now, Graham, I noticed you've also brought in an eco product yes. this morning. Tell us a bit about it. Pam, that's right. I've brought in some EcoFlow Dolomite. And of course, dolomite, as, as listeners would be aware, is um, calcium with magnesium in it as well. And this has been developed by organic crop protectants, the people that put out the uh, eco oil and eco neem and um, those eco, good eco products. And um, one of the things that I, I want, wanted to really talk about was that when we continually mulch our gardens, no matter what it is, whether it's straw, lucerne, or pea straw, what it actually does, it, d- it does send our um, um, soil um, acid. So it's worthwhile using lime on your garden, if not uh, every year, but every second year. And um, this is a product that can also be applied by connecting a container up to the hose and you can spray it on, on, 
on the garden itself. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you haven't got that reasonable balance with the with the acidity or alkalinity in your soil, other minerals won't be taken up by the plants very efficiently. Mm. And um, I really believe it's one of those important things. And, of course, calcium is the biggest element that we've got in our body, Mm. which is really important or mineral that we've got in our body. And, um, of course, it's one of those things that that, um, also is part of now that they're talking about probiotics. And I was at a a talk at La Trobe University recently, and we had a professor there from a Chicago university, and he was asked about probiotics, which, of course, work on our gut, Mm. which is really important. And um, he said probiotics in the years to come is going to become huge. And someone said, but why? He said, well, just as an indicator, by the lobbying that's going on uh, at the Pentagon. Okay. And the, the, uh, a lot of the um, pharmaceutical companies are really working on these probiotics for us humans, amongst other things. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's got a bit of a story. And, of course, probiotics work best when our system is alkaline. Mm. Yeah. So um, you're not suggesting we drink this though. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm pleased well, about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's if you look in the container it's really thick. It's really quite a thick yes. um uh, application and it's about five times the normal strength of ordinary powdered lime or ordinary powdered. So that dollar. container you've got there, what is it, five hundred mils? Yes. Approximately how big an area do you reckon you'd cover with that if you were putting it down on the garden? Uh, Stephen, that size would um, cover 250 square metres. Well, that's not bad. No, yeah. it's quite a big area. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's reasonably economical to, to put on, to apply. Mm. Right. And the, the well, uh, these are being, uh, or this lime's become available in um, the big... Um, uh, hardware stores. I won't say who they are, but <laughs> <laughs> the big hardware stores. Yes, yes. Uh, dear. And yeah. and of course, it it obviously dissolves um, in water, so you can yes. just put it in a watering can yes. and water it on. They've got a, an a, an applicator which you can just clip into the hose and use it. I like those. those. Yes. They're great fun. Those those sort of things because you. If just, they work properly, yes. oh yeah, some of them don't them backfire on you, <laughs> or, or they drip down your arm. Some, yes. of them, some of them do that as well. But I've got, yes. I've got a couple. I don't even remember what the original product was that was in them, but yes. it was bought in the container that way. Yes. I think it might have been um, some freebies that were given to me at different times at horticultural media events and yes. things. Uh, and a couple of them are really good, so I just keep reusing them if I want to see solar garden or if I want to, you know, put any sort of um, minerals or anything down. Well, I yep. just keep reusing the same mm. ones because they're really. Good ones. Yep. So, yeah, so if you get a good applicator, they... Hold on to it. <laughs> yes, yes, they're, they're worth keeping hold of. I seem to always get the, the oh, bummy the li- ones. <laughs> oh, yeah. You and me both, Pam. Yes. Yeah. I hate them. Yes. Yeah, really, I've got a couple of rippers that uh, do the job very well. Okay. So, in fact, I think the whole garden's ready for another sea soling and, yep. and what have you soon, so... Yeah. It's certainly the easiest way of doing it if you oh, can get one to work. Yeah. yeah, it's so much quicker. Oh, yes. You know, than mixing so, and so do you actually see soil your whole garden, Stephen? Every so often. Uh, mm. I don't do it on a regular basis. One, I haven't got the time, and secondly, I haven't got the money. <laughs> uh, but every so often I'll have a rush of blood and I'll mm. get you know a big container of sea salt and I'll do as much of the whole garden as I can with it. Uh, I just think, you know... It's just one of the components of things that I can put in, you yep. know, because as you know, I'm always for, you know, diversity in 
the things that you put on the ground because in a sense you're going to end up with different minerals and trace elements and things just by the diversity you're putting down. So I see the sea soil as just one of the components of the things that I put into the garden. Yep. Mm. Um, and I mean, if I was a seriously wealthy gardener and I could afford to buy big drums of it on a regular basis, I'd probably be a little more profligate with it. But um, uh, but I do a lot of mulching, composting, you know, all that sort of stuff. Mm. Uh, and the sea soil is just another one of those things that I use. Well, the inter- interesting thing about seaweed is they tell us it's got over 70 minerals in it mm. and that especially on our vegetables um, and knowing that our soils in, in Australia by and large are fairly depleted yes. it's amazing how plants will still grow in spite of mm. these things that are missing and you see it so much in roses when they're in pots and you look at the leaves you know because you know we, we're pruning them all the time in the nursery and in spite of the the um, uh, obvious deficiencies, they still get up and flower and still keep going. Mm. But then that reflects in our, our bodies, and I, I just believe that there's a lot of um, 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 conditions we have as human beings that are brought about by the fact that we don't have um, enough of these minerals released from the soil in where we're food, where food is grown. And they're saying that up, anything up to 65% of um, fertilisers applied to paddocks is just locked up in the paddocks. And the CSIRO are saying that now. And it's locked up because we haven't got the microbes working in the soil to break these things down and make it available to the plants. Mm. And we've knocked them off, you know. Superphosphate's got sulfuric acid in it. Yes, You know, know. come on, sulfuric Mm. acid. They wipe down, clean down brickwork on houses with sulfuric acid. And and, and that's going to knock off the soil microbes. Mm. It's crazy. Yes. Okay. Well, as I've mentioned, that number, if you'd like to join us this morning, do give us a call, 94190155. Before we move on to the plants you brought Mm. in, Stephen, we should mention this event that's coming up. Yeah. Now, this is one for the diaries, and I want to see everybody up there. Uh, The Mount Macedon Horticultural Society's got its yearly um, plant fair going on. We've changed the name but I won't go into the reasoning for that. It's now called the Garden Lovers' Fair. I suppose part of the reason is that it wasn't just about plants. No. Because we do have suppliers of books. We have Guilty comes down from Sydney. We have tool suppliers and you know people with garden ornaments and other things. So it's not just plants anyway. So we've changed the name to the Garden Lovers' Fair. Uh, it will be on Saturday the 19th and Sunday the 20th of September from 10 a.m. to 4.30, uh, to 4 p.m., sorry. And it will be at Bolabeck where it was last year, uh, at 370 Mount Macedon Road. Um, and what we're doing this year is that it's going to cost $10, and that's an upfront fee for the garden and the fair. Right. So it costs you 10 bucks to get in, but then you've got access to the garden, which is a lovely property. It's a fabulous National Trust-listed garden. Um, Originally landscaped by Oswald Syme, the original owner of the Age newspaper, um, and it's got some wonderful trees, and mm. you know the daffodils will be out. It, it should just be absolutely gorgeous, um, and um, but there will be no admittance until nine thirty on the Saturday. So keep in mind, don't arrive at the front gate too early um, uh, because we've got to be set up properly before we can let people in and all that sort of thing. So f- at 9.30, you'll be allowed in the front gate. Uh, the fair itself uh, opens at 10. Um, and, yeah, we've got all sorts of fabulous growers are going to be there. And that's actually the best bit is the fact that you've got all these people who are growing and selling the plants, not just selling plants. Yes. And so you can get grower information about how to look after the things. Great. Uh, and there'll be fruit trees, there'll be bulbs, there'll be perennials of all different 
different sorts. Uh, be a whole range of plant material. There'd be natives, uh, you know, growers from everywhere and all, all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I think we've got... I think we've got 35 stalls this year. Goodness. Uh, so it's a little bigger than normal. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so it's a great weekend, both the Saturday and the Sunday. Uh, they are also going to have a speaker's marquee this year, so there will be talks ah, going on throughout right. the two days. Uh, I know I'm supposed to do one on Sunday about middle of the day, I think. I've got to zoom down for one. Um, so they'll have a range of speakers talking on different things. Some of them will be the stall holders. There'll yes. be but other people as well. So And there'll be food available. So, you know, you'll be able to get hot food, coffee. You can make a real day of it. I mean, if, mm. if you can't spend most of the day just wandering around the garden and the stall holders, I'd be surprised. Yes, right. And, of course, you can always shoot up to my nursery afterwards. Of or before. What's the, what's the date of that again, please? Uh, it's the 19th and 20th of September. Uh, this year, so uh, I think it's going to be great fun. So uh, put that in your diary, make it an event that you come to because the other issue you've got to remember is that uh, we're the last man standing in a way because the garden scheme is no longer doing fairs. That's right. So at least for the foreseeable future, unless the new garden scheme decides to take on the idea and do it again. But So the Mount Macedon one is now the only one of these sort of private fairs being run in Victoria at the moment. Yes. So, so it's certainly a worthy thing to get involved with. Mm. And certainly it helps the Mount Macedon Hort Society as a fundraiser, so we appreciate anybody who comes along uh, and you'll hopefully go home with all sorts of interesting plants. Absolutely. So there you go. Yep. So yep. Garden Lovers Fair. 19th and 20th Excellent. of September. Okay. I should also quickly remind listeners that uh, Upper Cloud Hill at the moment, they, their um, art in the winter garden is uh, continuing. Now, uh, they use the, the structure of the winter garden up at Cloud Hill to, um, to show off some wonderful sculptural works that they've got uh, placed all around the garden. Uh, from many, many different artists. And uh, they also have um, a painting exhibition as well in the cafe there. So uh, if you're fancying a trip up to the Dandenongs, um, 138 Linda Monbulk Road uh, for Cloud Hill while that uh, art exhibition is is continuing on. I saw Jeremy the, the other day I was up there. He came into the nursery just... Cursing because of the lyrebirds. Oh, yes. <laughs> He's having a lot of trouble with lyrebirds at the moment. They're absolutely wrecking his lawns. They're digging mm. up the lawns like you wouldn't believe. Oh, God. Well, that's one thing we don't have a problem with at Macedon. We don't have lyrebirds. Mm. And yet it's a perfect habitat. Yeah. Actually, it, it, it's been an interesting discussion over the years. There's been a few people who've suggested that they should be reintroduced, but there's never been any proof that they ever actually were there. So okay. we don't know that lyrebirds were ever at Mount Macedon, mm. but it has the right sort of habitat for them. Yeah. Uh, I have mixed feelings about the idea of introducing them, though, because, because of the damage they can do in people's gardens. Oh, certainly. Uh, and we don't know for certain they were there, so you might no. actually be in, in, introducing an animal that didn't actually ever belong there. Yes. I can't I imagine they did very didn't... carefully before I introduced something. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah especially I've things s- like that. I've yes. seen what they've done up on Mount Disappointment out of Whittlesea. Oh, up, right. Up in the forest area where I used to get up to the do samples with the watering when I was with the health department, and they move mountains. Mm. Oh, yes. They're just huge, mm. the mounds they have, and they just seem to move it everywhere. Mm. They're just amazing critters. <laughs> yeah, but you don't want that in the middle of your garden. No, you no. don't. You uh, don't. Yeah, anyway. well, I feel for Jeremy. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun because there's no, not a lot you can really, do about that. He's mm. really cursing. Well, he's actually having to put, like, wire mesh over areas of his lawn. Mm. Just no, to, to stop them to Just to them stop digging. them digging, yes. So it's, it's really making a mess. Oh dear. Anyway, 
one of the joys of trying to <laughs> have a garden. Well, yeah. I've got I've got um, rabbits that are creating great big holes right in the middle of my garden mm. beds, right in the middle. Yes, mm. you know, you just look and you think, oh, you st- there was a plant there, and you have a look, and there's not only is there no plant, there's yeah. a hole. Mm. Yes. Oh, I just well, bunnies are one of those things that, yeah, well, mm. one has no compunction about dealing oh, no. with them if you can catch them. Uh, Absolutely. But lyrebirds, you can't do that to. No, and, exactly. Nor would you want to because they're just so beautiful and yes. gorgeous. But, yeah. Oh, dear. Oh, well. Stephen, let's get to your plants. All right. Well, now, daffodils were mentioned earlier uh, serendipitously because I bought a couple of daffodils along. And Graham was talking, as was our friend from um, down peninsula or wherever. Phillip Island. Phillip Island. I knew it was down along the coast somewhere. Yes. Uh, about hybrid daffodils and things that have been bred and the interesting uh, breeders and so forth. And one of the little daffodils I bought along, which has sort of gone sideways because I think it laid over in the van all night, um, is a hybrid daffodil. It's a true trumpet daffodil uh, that was bred in England in 1975 by a breeder by the name of Grey. And it's called Candle Power. And it is the cutest little It's gorgeous, thing. <laughs> isn't it? It's, um, you know, the whole flower is probably less than an inch from the trumpet to the back of the flower. Um, it's a pale lemon when it first comes out, and this has just opened over the last couple of days, but it will go almost white okay. by the time it's finished. And it is just this tiny little trumpet daffodil. It's just so it's, gorgeous. It's a cliche of what a daffodil should look like. Yeah. I mean, it's a perfect form. Yeah, it is, but all in miniature. Yes. Uh, and that's the thing I like about some of these miniature daffodils that they're breeding. They're breeding classical forms in them, so they're not all just hoop petticoats and things that were naturally miniature anyway. Yes. They're, they're breeding some of these true trumpet daffodils as miniatures. Mm. Now, candle power is still fairly hard to buy. It's not an overly quick multiplier. Um, I think I paid 20 or $30 for the first bulb I bought years ago from Rod Barwick in Tasmania. Uh, he had it on his list. Uh, I'm now charging 10 bucks each for them. Um, so they're not the cheapest daffodil you can buy, but no. when you consider the time that goes into producing them... Mm. I always point out to people that if you were paying a plumber by the hour, you'd be paying a lot more for some of these plants oh, than you actually yes. do. Oh, yes. so, so I think it's you know it's cheaper now at my nursery than it was when I bought it years ago. So I guess that's good value. And it is the sweetest little thing. So it's that's Narcissus Candle Power. Mm. Uh, and it always sells well at the nursery when, I, when it comes into bloom. Uh, in fact, I regularly sell out. I don't imagine there'll be too many of these left after the weekend because my stock pot is actually in flower at the moment. Okay. So I've got a pot with sort of eight or ten flowers out, mm. looking rather scrumptious. And so any of the ones I've potted up in tubes will probably go this weekend. But uh, great little daffodil. And another... Uh, wh- while you're mentioning that, uh, Stephen, and, and it's interesting, the first pink daffodil we ever got, um, we w- were game enough to take the bulb and cut it up in 30 pieces. Mm. And we had made sure that we had some of the root base yep. in yep. that. Yeah, the plate on it. Mm. Put it in vermiculite and put it in plastic bags. And of all places, we stuck it up in the ceiling of the house. Right. And um, the first year, we got um, 29 of them to take. And um, they come out as small forms. And then the second year, we still had 29. And that was the way we multiplied from one bowl. And it can be done. Really okay. quite easy. Yeah. I, I would hesitate to do it with some of the tiny bulb daffodils, though, yes. because they don't have enough staying power. We right. certainly uh, wouldn't get 29 out of that. No, no, because, no, <laughs> I mean, the bulb on candle power, mm-hmm. uh, a full-grown one, is mm-hmm. quite small. Mm-hmm. And from what I understand, that quartering of bulbs works quite well on bigger mm-hmm. hybrids mm-hmm. because they've got the staying power. There's enough nutrient left in the bulb yep. segments mm-hmm. 
to keep it going while they're producing the little baby bulbs. Mm. Mm. But with some of these little tiny ones, I believe it's not so easy. No. Uh, well, as much as it would be fun that I... Well, in some senses, it would be fun to build up bulk of a variety, but then in some ways, it's quite nice for it to still have some sense of exclusivity about yes, it, you know, where yes. it's not that easy to get, maybe. I don't know. Um, you can go either way with some of those sorts of things. I mean, if I started seeing pots of candle power with three bulbs in the pot being sold for $9.50 in the garden centres, that would sort of worry me a bit. Mm. Uh, be a bit sad in a way. Because yes. uh, nice that not everybody's got it. You're definitely into marketing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that. I'm never making enough money out of my nursery to consider that I'm a good marketer. Um, the other one I brought along is actually a species Narcissus, uh, Narcissus jonquilla in its variety Stellaris, which I believe has no real standing as a varietal name, but um, it's uh, it's a true jonquil. Now, what most people think of as jonquils, those big sort of ones that get quite tall and they have uh, strappy leaves and high perfume, are uh, nearly all tazettas. They're not actually jonquils. Uh, the true jonquils are much smaller. They have chivy-like foliage, uh, generally a couple of flowers or more to a stem, uh, short trumpets, uh, and quite highly perfumed. Mm. Uh, so this is John Quiller itself. In the wild, apparently, this often grows in areas that are temporary seeps, so it can flower under with its bulb underwater, uh, and then Good later heavens. in the season the ground dries up and the bulbs go dry for the summer. And I've seen pictures of these flowering with water flowing over the tops of the plants. Good heavens! Uh, not that I suggest you try and emulate that in the garden and home, Uh, in Spain and places like that. Mm. Um, uh, But this will grow perfectly happily in a normal open garden setting. Uh, It clumps up reasonably well, Mm -hmm. uh, makes good-sized clumps reasonably quickly. Uh, And, again, it's a small enough narcissus to, to look at home in the rock garden or, you know, in a, in a terracotta pot sitting on the barbecue table or whatever. It's mm. not and, – and that's what I spend a lot of time doing, buying what are being sold as miniature narcissus only to find that they're not because the classification of miniature narcissus is more to do with the flower size – than the plant size. Mm. Right. So you can often get a very small flowered narcissus, but it can come on a great big yes, tall stem. Yes. And for me, that's wrong. It doesn't, it, it's, it's out not of proportion. Balanced. Yes. You know? So I want them to not only have small flowers, but I want the plant to be of small stature as well. And certainly this jonquilla is about as tall as I like my daffodils to be mm. if I'm going to put them in a rock garden. Because mm. I don't want them any bigger than that. They'll overshadow everything else. Mm. So so they're really interesting little bulbs. And there's there's lots of them that are in flower now. I mean, I've had some of the bulbicodiums, the, the hoop petticoats, out in flower since the end of February, early March. Mm. And I'll have one form or another of daffodil out in flower now right through until end of October, early November, I guess, depending on the season. So, you know, daffodils aren't just spring flowers. Mm. You know, so you can get them for, for months and months on end. I mean, the only true green daffodil... Uh, Narcissus viridiflorus. Um, it's an autumn flowering one, um, but its flowers are so tiny and such a dark shade of green. The only way you can tell they're there is by the smell. You can you can smell the flowers, right. but you won't see them. Yes, uh, it's a bizarre little thing. But I know Fred's been trying to use that mm-hmm. in his breeding to get green daffodils. Okay, uh, and it's a truly bizarre looking thing. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so they're an interesting group of bulbs, and most daffodils are easygoing plants. I mean, many of them can stay in the garden for donkey's years undisturbed. Some of the modern hybrids need regular lifting and dividing and the mm. ground refertilizing and all I, that sort I wouldn't, of thing. I wouldn't buy any of them. I can't see the point. I mm. mean, the thing that is so glorious about daffodils 
daffodils is just having them in the garden and they pop up unexpectedly. Yeah, well, there is that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, um, My but, garden's full of them and it's mm. just fabulous. I think, mm. oh, I'd forgotten about you. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's fun. And mm. I've got them popping up all over the garden at home. The labels have disappeared on mm. some, as they do. Uh, on so, many. Yeah, well, mm. yes, I think the label fairies come in every night and steal <laughs> your labels. Yes. Um, but, you know, I've got some of Rod Barwick's hybrids in the garden at home that I can't remember whether that was Glenbrook Bell or whatever the different ones are. They're all slightly muddled up, but they're they're really pretty Mm. daffodils. But some of them were just slightly too big for my miniature sort of criteria as far Mm. as I'm concerned. So they went home to the garden and they're just nice garden plants. Yes. And daffodil bulbs do enjoy some lime too. There was research done about five or six years ago. Okay. And one of the challenges that that, that happens with bulbs is... um, especially daffodils, and, and in your open soils with Virginia where she is and Stephen as well, that drying off the soil is essential. We've been losing a lot of daffodils in our soil, but we're in really, really heavy clay. Yes. Yeah, so it and, gets wet and stays yes. wet for a long time. Yes. Yes, yeah. yes. Mm. yes they'd rot off. Oh, look, here comes a caller. Okay, we'll go to Wendy, who's in Vermont South. Good morning, Wendy. Oh, good morning, everyone, and it's lovely to listen to all your... Your daffodil um, information, I've got them coming up too. It's a beautiful time of the year, isn't it, in the garden? It's lovely. Um, Anyway, my questions, if you don't mind, are about roses. Um, I pruned back my um, uh, black beauty. It's just the ordinary rose, um, but it's beautiful. However, in the last spring, summer, it had ongoing problems with rust, and every time I sprayed it, it would clear up, but it would just keep coming back. I'm wondering, in this quieter season for roses, is there anything I can do to help it stop it? doing that in the spring and summer um i what i'd recommend you use is use use some eco oil eco oil yes yes and And dilute it down uh around about um to about 25 percent all right with water okay and then get a paintbrush and paint it on all right so if i do that in this off season now yes yeah yeah okay and that that um usually will um, clear up your problems with rust. All but right. make sure you paint it on. Paint it Get on. an old okay. paint brush and just paint it on. So on, I can't on the spray paint. it on? No, I've I, I found that the, the painting does better. Does better, yes. all right. And, and it's got leaf growth on it now. Do I, I leave it there, though, still? I can't paint that, can I? Well, you, you can paint up around where the buds are starting to yep. form off on the stem. Yep, yep, okay. Um, but, yeah, I'd, I'd get, to, get to it now. All right, I will. You've got to be Thanks. a bit like the Queen of Hearts out there painting yes. the roses. Oh, <laughs> I don't care. I'm, I'm Your neighbours are going to think you're really nuts. Wendy. They won't see me. I'm in a good spot here. I'm going to have a great time doing that. Um, <laughs> now, I've got another question. It's a climbing gold bunny, and I'm trying to grow it over my garage door, and it's doing great. It's probably, oh, I don't know, four or five metres in length, and I'm not... I know nothing about pruning a, a climber. Mm. Do I just leave it go or should I be, you know, cutting some of this length off or what do I do? How old is it? Oh, gee, it's very... It's been moved from my mum's place to here. Yes. I've had it in this spot now for oh, two and a half years, I guess. Yes. Um, well, if it's an older plant, I'd recommend what you do is take out at least one piece of old growth. Yep, yep. Right? But go right down onto, the, onto where it's been budded on. Yes. And take it right off level with that budded piece. Okay. Now, what that will do will begin to force more newer growth. Now, hang on. You're talking about the old growth. Take it right down to where yes. it's budded on. Take one piece out of that climber every year. All right. All right. Okay. Okay. And that will then that um, cause the newer growth to come on. All right. And that's what you always get your best flowers on. Okay. And that right. will rejuvenate your plant for years to come. Wow. 
wow, see, that's something I knew nothing about. Okay, so the rest of it, the rest of this climbing rose, though, like there's about oh, four big, long pieces going over the grudge. I just leave the rest of them there. No, I trim them back by at least uh, 25 30%. That's all right. Okay, fabulous. Okay. This is wonderful. I feel like I'm in the know now, and I'm about to go get some eco oil and paint this. this um, uh, and sharpen up those secretaires by the sounds of it. And oh, look, I, I tell you, it's an exciting time. I'm loving it. Oh, just just with, your, with your climbing goal, Bunny, yep. where... On the main canes, you have the little um, growth or laterals come out where the flowers develop. Yes, yep. Trim them back in the old language and leave around about three inches on them. All right, all, all right. right. Hey, this is great. Okay, yeah. do I'll that, think... and that 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 will um, encourage the the plant to flower. All right. From from those growths, and it will enable you to have more flowers lower down on the climber. All that will be lovely. When it's all happening, I'll send you guys a photo. Excellent. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much for your show. Okay, bye. Bye. I do love a, a gold bunny. When it's out in flower, it's a, it's a beautiful I climber. I prefer a chocolate one. <laughs> <laughs> You're in fine form this morning, no, aren't you? I can't help myself. I well, we've we got hot chocolate for you. No, good. <laughs> or hot cocoa. Or hot in, cocoa. In, yeah. All right. Good. Yes. Well, I'll be in for that. Oh, dear. I think yellow is quite a hard colour to put in the garden. It, it can, you know, it varies enormously and it can look quite difficult in the garden. I mean, gold bunny is beautiful, mm. but I think yellow has to be contained in the garden. You can't just sort of splash see, it about anything. I love yellow. I'd be more inclined to try and I'd control I'd be putting pink. it everywhere. <laughs> pink is insidious. Pink takes over. Well, pink and yellow often do not look good. No, no, they they can actually scream at each other. But, yeah, I find pink the hardest colour to control uh, because so many good plants are pink. And so you can very easily end up with a pink garden, mm. you know, because when you think about it, there's a lot of pink roses, pink azaleas, pink rhododendrons, pink blossom. Yes. Uh, there's an awful lot of pink flowers out there. And I don't have a particular objection to pink, but I just don't want it everywhere. And yes. it's so easy to end up going that way with mm. pink. Um, so I actually control it. I have certain areas where it can stay as Barbara Cartland-esque as it likes. And in <laughs> other areas, I won't allow pink because um, I find that the colour that takes over most. Yellow I, I can cope with quite well, particularly in the winter-spring, because yes. it's the colour of the season. Mm. So I, I like it to be completely out there in the spring. Mm. Um, and I certainly like it in my... Because I have areas of the garden which I call hot areas, so where all the bright colours go together. And I think the more you mix them up, the less they clash with each other. Mm. So I've got a border where all my perennials are red, yellow, orange, um, you know, all of the really bright, strong colours um, with plenty of foliage in amongst it to mediate the whole thing a bit. Um, but all the hot colours go in there and I won't let a pastel or a pale colour yes. in there because as soon as you do that, you end up with a problem. Yes. You know, so, so, so Virginia, with your yellows, where where do you favour them to go in your garden? <coughs> I I... I... I'm a bit the same as Stephen. I, I really don't like yellow and pink together. Yeah, it's really hard to use those colours together. It's, it's more a matter of what you put together, and I like to contain any area, not to have too many colours. Mm. Yeah, so, yes, I agree on that one. Um, but, you know, I, to the other extreme too, some people have an aversion to a colour and they won't include it in their garden, and I think that's sort of sad. I think sometimes it's a good idea to use every colour but use it in a nice combination somewhere to make sure that you're you're not missing out on some really good plants. I mean, a lot of people have aversions to orange and don't like orange flowers, and I know a lot of people who don't like those sort of screaming magentas and, and violent cerises and things like that, and yet some of the best plants have got those sort of colours. So if you can learn to 
to use them and use them well. I mean, I don't actually believe there's almost any such thing as a bad plant. It's just how mm. people use them. Yeah. Um, and so nearly any group of plants can be used and used well. Um, there's just some plants I couldn't be bothered trying to use mm. well because I don't think they're exciting enough. Yes. Um, but everything can, can be used in the garden. It's just a matter of how you do it. And I think mm. great gardens show that use of plants well. You know, you can have a well-maintained garden, but it can just be fairly all serrano ordinary. Mm. But if somebody really uses their plants well and combines them in really good combinations, that lifts gardens to the next level. And I, 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 I agree, and I love purple and orange together. Yeah, fantastic mm-hmm. colour combination. Or purple and yellow, I find a really good combination as well. So, um, um, yeah, so I think it's a, it's a really good combination. So... Yes, any sort of colour combination you can get. Sorry, we're just we're just mucking around with some headphones ah. here because uh, Graham's ones have gone on the blink by the oh, sound of it. Oh, dorks. Yep. Oh, well, there we go. Yep. Uh, now, we have another call come through. We so. do have another call come through. We're going to go to Eleni in Heidelberg. Good morning, Eleni. Uh, good morning, all. I have a question for Stephen. Um, I have the two-litre hose-on bottle. Yeah. And I like to find out, once I fill it with water, how much seaweed do I put in? What is the ratio? You mean the bottle that goes on the hose? Yes. You put all seaweed? The concentrate? Yes, you put the concentrate in the bottle that goes on the hose, and when the hose goes through, that's what dilutes it. All right. So you just put the concentrate into those bottles that go on the end of the hose? Yes. All right. So that's how they work. Uh, So it actually dilutes it as the hose is going out. So it's the full bottle, the concentrate I put in. Yes. Exactly. I mean, if you you dilute it first, well, then you're possibly going to put it down too... It's going to be too diluted. Too diluted on uh, on the actual garden itself. So, yeah, so you put the full concentrate in. The full uh, concentrate. Or, in fact, the full concentrates of a mixture of things. If you're putting, say, sea soul and power feed in or something like that, you can put both products into the one container and then spray them both together. Um, So, yeah, so that's what I would do. So the full concentrate should go on. Lovely. Or in, I mean. Yeah. Lovely. Oh, great. Thank you. Okay. That's a pleasure. Bye. Bye. Yeah, some people don't quite understand those bottle things. They are actually mm. for diluting it down. So, you, yeah, that's the way you work it. Yes. Mm. Yeah. I mean, if you're mixing in a watering can, you're mixing it with the water and yeah. diluting it down before you put it on. But the, the hose-on fitted ones, yeah. the hose Dilutes does the it. job for you. Yeah. Yep. Which is why they are, you know, if they work well, they're quite they're convenient fantastic. And, and, you know, a yep. good thing to, to use, really. Exactly. It's exactly. just that very big if. <laughs> yes. Well, as I said, when you get a good one, hang on to it. <laughs> I don't think I've got one yet. Yeah. <laughs> I'll keep trying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, I do tend to get rather wet oh. trying them out. Yeah, oh well. A bit frustrating. Anyway. Um, I should remind listeners that um, we have now put um, a lot of the product that was uh, left over from our Radiothon up online. So we've got a full listing of all the gardening books that are available. We've also reduced the cost of them. Mm-hmm. So if you simply log on to, uh, well, go to www.3cr.org.au forward slash shop, that will take you straight to the, uh, the gardening shop basically, and we've got, uh, as I say, a full listing of all the books that are available. Um, it also uh, lists a lot of the um, the vouchers we have. Not only do we still have vouchers for many of the nurseries, mm-hmm. but um, we also still have um, vouchers for garden consultations with uh, some of our landscape designers and horticulturists. And... Uh, 
So it's well worthwhile. And, it, of course, we'll also uh, not only have we got those products at reduced costs uh, to you, so there's some great bargains, but it also keeps the, our Radiothon money coming in to yeah. support the station for the next 12 months, <laughs> very importantly. Yeah. And, of course, we don't want really wonderful gardening books going to waste. They make such wonderful gifts. Yeah. And um, dare I say, Christmas is getting closer. Very much so, yes. <laughs> yes, we're on, we're on the, the downward slide to Christmas. <laughs> oh, I mean, even Graham was mentioning Father's Day with the rose, but a good gardening book as well. And we've, mm. we have books on roses along with many other subjects. So, mm. um, yeah, so well, there's, there's another Father's Day thought. Yes, yeah. exactly. Mm. So uh, just jump online. You're doing yourself a favour, but you're also supporting 3CR and in particular the gardening show. Yeah. So, uh, yes, because we're the most important, of course. Well, <laughs> we, we enjoy coming in... Um, you know, every Sunday morning, even yeah, though it I'm does mean moving. getting up in the dark and, <laughs> yes. and the cold and the rain sometimes. But once we're in here, we love sharing information with our listeners. So of course we do. It's all good fun. Chatting to our regulars, all that stuff, it's fun. Absolutely. We're going next to uh, Bert, who's out in queue. Good morning, Bert. Good morning, all. How are you today? We're well, thank you. Excellent. I'm watching the rain or the sprinkling of the rain start and stop and start again through the uh, window with oh, okay. the cocoa and it's looking over the uh, big paddocks there and the gardens is lovely. I wanted to ask about um, a quince tree that a neighbour has. Yeah. It has not been maintained and there is now peeling bark. My first thought is inside the peeling bark of the quince tree there would be insect eggs such as we see in uh, peeling bark off roses. So my question is, if we peel away that bark to get to the eggs, whether they're there or not, is that going to kill the quince tree or is that going to help the the quince tree? Bert, it depends on what you're talking about with peeling bark. If it's just the superficial outer layer of bark that's peeling off naturally... Uh, you can take it off if you wish, but you'd need to be careful you don't actually expose cambium tissue. So you don't want to have any wood showing through. Um, it's quite a natural thing for quinces to have bark peel. I mean, that's normal. They do get these sort of shreddy, peely bits that hang off the tree. Um, I'd be more inclined myself, though, to leave the bark alone and perhaps just give the whole trunk a white oiling or something like that at some stage just to clean up any bug eggs. White oil? Yeah. So you're not suggesting things like lime sulphur? Well, you could use a lime sulphur spray on the tree as well. I mean, any of those sort of winter sprays that you'd put down, you can, in fact, um, uh, put on the tree. you just got to make sure that it goes into the nooks and crevices a bit better. Uh, I just worry that if you start peeling that loose bark off that you might actually peel off live bark as well. I do understand your fear. And you may well do some damage to the... um, uh, to, to your actual quince tree's cambium layer, which would be a problem. And it's uh, future growth. Yeah, so I don't like to tamper with trees' bark too much. Well, particularly when you think, I mean, some of our eucalyptus, for example, just lose so much of their bark, mm. and it's absolutely part of their natural procedure. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. So I don't think I'd peel it off personally. Yes, I remember hearing a woman saying that she had peeled off the bark, I think, of a malaleuca or a... Um eucalyptus and uh, the eucalyptus ended up dying so I yeah yeah look 
problem. It's a natural, it is a natural thing. Uh, I might add the quince itself, although quinces can get um, uh, codlin moth and, and a few other bugs and pests, it's the quince tree itself is almost indestructible. Um, so it may harbour bugs, but it's not going to be affected by them itself much. So I've just planted dead... five of, five in my paddock. Mm. Just so any dead stumps where the uh, quince tree was pruned, not at the bifurcation, that's not a problem either? Oh, look, I'd clean up things like knobs and stubs and things on trees because apart from anything else, they look tidier. Um, I would. So that's what I would do if I were... Um, uh, if I was in charge of a tree like that, I mean, I want my trees to look nice as well as um, performing well. So a well-pruned and maintained tree, I think, always looks better than something that's been hacked or given a hard time to. We're in agreement. Thank you. Yeah, so, yeah, so tidy the tree up, but I'd leave the bark. Excellent. We'll try that. Thank you very much for your... Yeah, it's a pleasure, Bert. And we'll have a hot cocoa for you. Yeah, all right. And, and you can bring in some quince paste next year. <laughs> we can do that. Thank you again. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. We are running through until 9.15, so if you'd like to jump on the phone and ask a gardening question, we'd love to hear from you. The number is 94190155. That's 94190155. Stephen... Jobs in the garden at the moment. What what are you concentrating on? Uh, well, I'm doing my winter weeding mm-hmm. before things start to really move. I think that's really important. Get on important. top of it yeah. now. Get on top of your weeds. And if you can do that, uh, then you're in for a slightly more relaxed spring and early summer. Uh, so I'm doing a lot of weeding at the moment, getting onto all that flickweed, the ground cress and all those sorts of things before they start to flower. Um, and then mulching over the top. I mean, we've had enough rain now. And for me... When I've got the time to do it is the time to do it sometimes. Yes. And so although it's early-ish to be mulching, um, I've got some mulch sitting there. I've got a clean garden bed. What do I do? Mm. Well, I've got an open garden in about two and a half weeks. So to say that I'm doing just a little bit of weeding is an understatement. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because you always feel that you have to put your best foot forward Mm. if you've got people coming. Coming. And I was Mm. away for two months in London, so there was a lot of time for weeds to grow. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I'm doing, and of course the bloody oxalis is back yeah. yet again. Oh yeah, well, well, this week is an ideal week for weeding, according to the moon phases. Ah, ah, well, okay. okay so, well, I'm... I was just going to weed anyway, but I'm glad <laughs> I've got that extra sort of uh, uh, thing happening for me. That's good. Well, but you, yeah. can, you can follow the moon phases from the um, house, home and garden magazine, and they've got them um, in the um, in the gardening section. And this week is definitely a great week for pulling out weeds. And they do come out easier. Oh, they definitely are yes. coming out easily at the oh, moment. It's yes, wonderful. It's, Except yeah. the oxalis. I mean, yeah. you know. That well, you, you really shouldn't be pulling oxalis anyway mm. because as soon as you try and get it out, you tend to spread it. Yes. So, you know, if you've got the weedy oxaluses in the garden, you need to keep them contained a bit. Um, and, yes, it can be quite a problem to deal with those. They are. That is one of the worst weeds. That's not a weed. That's just an absolute... There, you think there should be another word for yes, a yes. level above? Another level, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think you're right, Graham. Uh, but, yeah, so I'm doing a lot of weeding, I'm mulching. Uh, I'm finishing my pruning for the year. Uh, anything I haven't done my winter prune to now I probably won't touch because things are starting to, to move over the next few weeks. So, I mean, the roses, yeah, you can still keep going with those. But some of the fruit trees and things are already coming into bloom. Yes. I mean, I've got early plums already starting to flower. So I won't touch those now. Um, I'm 
missed one of my plums this year, so it'll just get pruned as the summer pruning after it fruits. Mm. So, so those sorts of things I'm sort of leaving. Um, I just like to get on top of the general tidying up. Um, most of my perennials have now been cut down other than one or two sort of structural things that still look quite good. But, yes, all the cannas, the flowering gingers, the grasses. You've cut the cannas. Yeah, I decided to clean them up. That's uh, brave because there's still frost around. Oh, yeah, there's still frost around. But, I mean, some of my cannas are, you know, well, well-developed well clumps. I think they'll come through fine. There's a fair bit of leaf litter lying in the beds anyway that'll just give them that little bit of extra protection. And they were just looking so yuck. <laughs> you know, sometimes at the end of the get, as you get towards the end of the season, I just go, oh, do you know what? I can't live with this anymore. I'm yes. going to take the risk and just deal with it. The mm. other thing I've been doing, which I'm really proud of, is I have turned the vegetable garden back into a vegetable garden. Oh, yes, yours was becoming something of a flower garden, wasn't yeah. it? Yes. <laughs> it was propagation. Yes. <laughs> Sue and I just turned my vegetable garden into a propagation, yeah. five propagation beds, yeah. which was fairly hopeless. So mm. I've two are still got distinct signs of propagation, but three yeah. are proper, proper, proper vegetable yeah. beds again. And what vegetables are you putting in now, Virginia? Beetroot, spinach, mm. um, you know, things... I'm just putting in the things I use a lot of. Mm-hmm. I use a lot of beetroot. I use a lot of spinach. Mm. I love spinach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is um, one of those great greens, isn't it? I mm. love spinach. Yeah. And silver beet I don't ever put in. I don't like it as much. And also it grows as a weed at my place. It mm. marches down through the lemon orchard. So mm. I think you've got plenty of silver beet already, Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> I like silver beet. I love I'm, it. Yeah, I I'm always on, have it in the garden. Yeah, I, I'm on silver beet side. I yes. quite like it as a vegetable. It's a, uh, it's a great uh, fowl uh, green. Yeah, well, and the chooks will eat any. I give about every second day. Well, yeah. Yeah. when the the reason I have a, a fenced-in vegetable garden is because when I moved in, I had a peacock, and the only thing he didn't eat, wouldn't <laughs> touch, was <laughs> silver beet. Well, that doesn't mean you shouldn't eat it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm just interested that Graham's, yeah, yeah. Graham's chooks are so keen on it. Yeah, oh, yeah, the chooks will love it. If I he... throw spare mm. or scruffy old silver beet leaves into mm. the chook shed, mm. they love it. But the funny thing is, though, they'll, they will go past a silver beet leaf to get to a milk thistle. Yes. Mm. They adore milk thistles. Mm. I don't know what it is about those things. I mean, all that milky sap that comes out and everything, you'd think nobody would want to eat them. Mm. But the chickens love them. Well, I believe the fowls have got an inbuilt ability to select those um, herbs or leaves for what they need, Mm. what they actually Mm. need. And I've been experimenting with ordinary grasses, especially when they start to lay. The fowls need, know they need those, those greens. The roosters don't go for it as much, but those that are laying got to go for that green. And then, of course, you get that gorgeous colour in your egg, which is really nice yellow, rather than artificial stuff that comes from pumped-up pellets. Mm. Yes. Uh, oh, look, we've got another caller coming. We have. We're going to uh, Marie, who's out in Park Orchards. Good morning, Marie. Morning, everyone. Absolutely love your show, so thank you very much. Good. I have a question about moving an almond tree. I, ha- I have a young almond tree that's been in for a bit over 12 months. It's now about two metres tall. Yep. And it's, uh, it's, I meant to move it this winter. It's probably a little bit going to be a bit too large for the place it's in. And winter um, has got past me and it's now started to flower. So I'm mm. just wondering if it's too late to move it this no, season. No, I'd move it. But I'd do it really quickly. I mean, I've still got bare-rooted trees coming in. 
Great. You know, so I've got an order coming in from one of the growers, hopefully this week, uh, of still bare-rooted trees. And although almonds will start flowering fairly early, the tree itself is still fairly dormant. Mm. So I would have no compunction about moving. I mean, you'll probably muck up the flowers that are on it uh, in the actual physical move. uh, And I would prune it back a bit if it hasn't been pruned. So I'd take sort of, you know, about a third of the growths or the third of the length of the growths back when you you dig it up because you're going to dig up a plant and, and cut some of its roots, so you really should pull its top back a bit. Um, but they should shift perfectly well now. Excellent. Thank you. Okay. Mm. On that, I have got um, two Sambucus black lace mm. that have just looked very poor ever since I put them in. They just mm. have not coped clear, definitely, I think, with the summer. Yeah. And I saw a lot of them in London. They've mm. been, well, all over. Yeah, Which it's sort of one of those plants of the moment, actually. Yes, in, in very. Europe. They're everywhere. Yeah, all through France too. They're, but they're very popular. They were. They've been planted there, very much in um, protected, quite almost shady places mm. that are likely to be damp. Sambucus do you have need the a bit national of collection. Like yeah. I should ask. Yeah, you. well, Sambucus do like a bit of moisture. I know during the the whatever how many years of drought we went through that I found my even in my garden where I was trying to keep the water up to things the Sambucus were struggling a bit. Um, but since we went into a pattern where we were getting proper winter rains, they seem to be able to overcome it better. Because if they get good rains in the spring and they get a good growth spurt, they don't mind being checked a bit later in the season. Uh, the issue with things like black lace though is you don't want to put it in too much shade because it's such a dark coloured foliage it'll mm. just make a black hole. It'll disappear. So it needs a little bit of light to bring up the colour of the foliage. But if you can plant it somewhere, it gets the late afternoon sun or the early morning sun and just keep it out of that real heat of the day period. Well, I've had the feeling that it, what, where I've got it, it seems to be objecting to the north wind. Look, the north winds could be a problem, particularly when we get those 45-degree days. Mm. I mean, no plant really enjoys no, that. No, um, So when we get those really hot days, yes, it could be too much for them. I mean, they are... You know, Northern Hemisphere cool climate plants, and although they're reputedly pretty tough and hardy, the Sambucus, there are limits for them like there are for lots of stuff. Well, I had trouble growing the ordinary elderberry, mm. yeah. which I find extraordinary because really it's a weed. Well, it is a weed. Mm. I mean, there's, there's, there's self-sown seedlings of it up around Mount Macedon that have been there for donkey's years. Mm. But in our good, rich soils and with reasonably reliable rainfall and quite often with a bit of forest canopy not too far away. So, yeah, so they would have that little bit of shelter. So, uh, actually, it's funny you mentioned Sambucus. I was doing a little research on them the other day and I found a nursery in the Cotswolds that has got the biggest list of Sambucus you've Mm. ever seen in your life. I didn't realise there were so many selections. So I've now got to start thinking about whether I try and import some more from well, my they're, collection. They're definitely breeding the, the black one. Oh, yes. There's a, yeah. new ones that I'd never seen yeah. before. Yeah. And they've got different coloured flowers. They haven't all mm. got just the pink flower. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So, yeah, so there's a lot going on in them. Mm. Uh, so I went through their catalogue the other night on the computer, having a look and, and finding out what some of the names were alluding to because a lot of them had names that I'd never heard of, so I didn't know what the Sambucus was for because some are bred for the size of fruit. So mm. some of them are, you know grown for that reason. Others are grown for their ornamental foliage, uh, and I'm more interested in the ornamental foliage ones probably than the ones you grow Mm. for fruit. Although there's a chance I might even import one or two of those because I don't think we've got any named fruiting cultivars of Sambucus in Australia. No. Yeah, I mean, most of them get fruit, but they're they're not grown specifically as good big fruited varieties. No, that's right. They've made a lot of selections overseas for that very purpose. And it it is a brilliant way to make wine. Yeah, 
Yeah. I was going to say, does it? It makes a good liqueur. Yeah. Look, you mm. can do all sorts of stuff. Well, that's where they get Sambuca from, mm-hmm. uh, or at mm. least that's one of the constituents thereof. Mm. And I mean, with Sam Sambucas, you can make. Fritters from the flowers. Oh, yes. Which are delicious. You can make champagne. You can make, make cordial. cordial. Uh, you can make jams, jellies, uh, wines from the fruit. Um, uh, it's got a whole range of uses. Mm. You can make pan pipes from the stems. There's a very useful uh, thing you can put your sambucas to. Pan pipes from the stems. Yes. And they keep witches away. So what more could you want? <laughs> um, in, in, in Virginia's case, I think that's why sambucas aren't working terribly well. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, this is a joke really. he's made before. I, I, think, I think it would be really great to get to get into Australia some of the named fruit varieties. Yeah, so well, I, I am think tempted, it'd be a real... but it's so expensive and bureaucratic oh, and difficult to go through quarantine that I'm sort of hesitating. But I thought I might get in touch with this nursery and say, are they prepared to send? If they're prepared to send, then I'll have a talk to a friend about quarantine and see whether they're prepared to quarantine for me because I'm not happy to go through the government quarantine stations anymore. They no, kill too had, much of your stuff. Yes. Oh, I've had too many losses. Yes. So I'd need to make sure I had a, uh, somebody set up ready for the quarantining before I apply for any permits. Yep. Um, and then I might go with it because this nursery not only has a really good range of sambucas, they have a surprisingly good range of acanthus, which is oh, another really? one of the things that I collect. So, um, yeah, so, um, uh, yeah, so I'm sort of perhaps considering it again, uh, but I need to have a good spring. So everybody needs to come up and spend lots of money so that I can then start thinking about importing some more plants. So, so you can have them privately Quarantine. You can. There are some people that have their own quarantine stations that are inspected by the government right. inspectors, but they look after them themselves. Same with the roses. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it can be, I mean, it's an expensive thing to set up. So obviously if, if somebody's prepared to quarantine my plants, I'll have to pay for it, but mm. that's fine. I don't mind that. I'm happy to pay for things if I actually get something at the end of it. It's when you have to pay for things and you don't get anything at the end of it, exactly. which has basically happened to me twice now with yeah. imports I've done through government quarantine stations. Um, there's not the same care and attention given. In fact, if you were if you were a conspiracy theorist, you'd actually think that they were doing it on purpose to discourage you from importing. Mm. Mm. Now, I'm not suggesting they would do that. No, of course you're not. No, I'm not. Uh, but it does make one wonder why so many of the plants that you bring in through government quarantine stations don't make it. Mm. You know, And yet, if you bring them through a private quarantine station where somebody is looking after them who's a plants person, then you have a much higher potential of having them survive. So you've got to wonder how that happens. Yep. Yep. Is there likely to be any improvements with the new, the new quarantine station on the Donnybrook Road, Stephen? That's, I don't that's, know. That's huge. We, we will see. We will see. We have, we have um, our computer screen has gone completely blank, but I know we have a, a caller online, so we're going to go to Helen, who's in Fitzroy. You there, Helen? Yes. Yes, good. Thanks for hanging on. Yeah, I've got a tiny courtyard, big brick paved, and there's an ugly double-storey extension behind me that I'd like to screen. So I was mm. just wondering what you'd now, you say you've got a brick paved area. Can you remove bricks and plant something into the ground? Yeah. Good, because that makes it so much easier. Because unfortunately, most things that are going to grow tall enough to screen you are either going to have to go in hugely big pots or, you, or you're going to get them to a certain size and then they're going to start pegging out. They just won't be able to cope anymore. Yeah. So if, in fact, you can go down into the ground, then that makes it a lot easier. How tall do you need to have this plant to grow to reasonably be considered to screen you? Double store extension. So you're going to need something that's going to be, you know, three, perhaps four metres tall. Yep. All right. 
You've got a tiny courtyard, so you obviously don't want something that's going to come over and fill the whole courtyard, which is very possible when you're going to get something that's as tall as that. I mean, my first inclination is to to suggest one of the clumping bamboos. That's exactly what I was thinking, Uh, bamboo. They would have the most likely habit that's going to work for you. They make neat clumps. They don't run, so they're not going to cause you or neighbours any grief. Uh, And you can buy a bamboo that will grow to almost any given height that you're actually going to go for and as long as you pick the right varieties you can get some that are fairly vertical so that they're not going to billow out too much or you can get others that sort of come up and arch over which can be very attractive and you won't need as many to run along but they will come in and take over some of your space So there's a whole range of clumping bamboos in the genus Bambusa, which are generally quite good for open sunny spots. And if it's a semi-shaded spot, I'd go for some of the Himalayan bamboos, the Fargesias. Oh, yeah, no, it, it, this wall gets the north sun. All right, well, then you'd probably need to go for one of the bambusa types, and they vary from 2 metres up to 30 metres. Oh, OK. So right. there's a whole range of them. I would recommend going to somebody who knows their bamboos uh, in preference to just going to a normal garden centre because you're going to get a very, very small selection and you may or may not get the right one. And I still have this fear that there's a few running bamboos being sold out there by people who don't know that they're running bamboos. Uh, and so you could end up inheriting a real problem. Uh, I mean, I don't have an objection to the running bamboos in the right place, but I can imagine your tiny courtyard isn't the right place. So you need to go to somebody who really knows their bamboos and there's um, um, bamboo creations out at Riddles Creek. Uh, If you want to go out to my side of town, they're very, very good. Um, There's... um, I'm trying to remember what the other one is. There's bamboo growers somewhere in... I know if you you Google bamboo growers in in Victoria... Yeah. You get a couple that are just outside Melbourne. One of them is the Riddles Creek people. Yeah, and there's one on the other side of town and I'm just trying to remember what... It's got red in it somewhere. Yes, in the name. yeah, I have seen. Yeah, but there's there's two or three good bamboo growers out there. Uh, I mean, I stock a range of bamboos in the nursery up at Macedon as well, and, and, and I tend to stock the ones that I know to be good clumping bamboos, and I have a, a sense of some of them, but I don't have as big a range as some people would have. Yeah. But, you know, I possibly could be... Uh, I mean, I've got one of the Fargesias that I think would probably do the job quite well, actually. Um, I don't think I've got any of the bambooses that are... Oh, no, actually, that's not true. I might have even a bambooser that would grow for you. But anyway, if you wanted to come and see me, I'm at the nursery most of the time except Wednesdays and Thursdays, or you could get in touch with one of these bamboo specialist nurseries. So where's your nursery? Mount Macedon. Which is a nice drive from town. Yeah. And what do you suggest for weeding the brick-paved courtyard? Because it's, it's like grass. Well, it depends on your attitude to things. I mean, I'm not mad keen on spraying weedicides everywhere. I mean, the glyphosate-type weedicides will clean it up if you're going to go in, in that direction. Um, but a nice, just sharp little um, tool like the things they pull stones out of horses hooves um, that you can just run along I mean if you're in a tiny courtyard my attitude is that you probably will have more than enough time to physically deal with things Uh, whereas if you're on an acre garden then maybe you need some other help Uh, so the bigger your garden is the more perhaps you need other help to deal with things but in a small space it shouldn't be beyond the bounds to get in there with a um, in fact you can buy a tool that just is a one-pronged mm. tool that you can scrape between yeah. brickwork to pull out moss or weeds or whatever yeah. should you wish to i mean it does mean getting down on your hands and knees but it's exercise yep that's true and what about pruning mandina 
To thin it out. Well, thin, I would thin Nandina more than prune it if you've got the normal upright ones, the bigger yeah. growing ones, because I hate seeing them chopped off. They look just silly. Uh, and the whole point of them is that verticality that they make. So I would just go through and cut out some of the older canes completely. Yep. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. Fantastic. Okay. Bye. Bye. Next up, we have uh, John, who's out in Lilydale. Good morning, John. Oh, good morning. Uh, it's Jan, actually. I oh, think. sorry, Jan. Uh, no, it's, it's to do with the possums. Uh, I heard it uh, on a radio show, or I saw it in a magazine somewhere, that someone had got rid of their possums eating their lemons and various other things. They're eating my magnolia at the moment. They're cleaning the top of it, of course. Uh, they put a radio underneath and left that plane. They didn't like the, uh, uh, the voices. So mm. I don't know whether it works. My gut feeling is it might work temporarily, but possums are pretty clever critters, and I reckon they'll get used to it. They'll soon wake up to it. Yeah, I think they'd get used to it. And it would depend on what you're playing. I mean, a bit of Mozart would probably just give them some music to dine by. No, I wasn't thinking of music. I was thinking of voices. I'll have to find the talk back at night. I don't know how many of those they do at night. Oh, there's plenty of those around. I'm sure there's plenty. 774. Yes, they talk all night. Well, I do listen to that myself. But anyway, I thought it was worth a try, but I haven't done it yet, so... Um, yeah, I think I think if it was going to work at all, you would have to move the radio around into different locations in the garden. And I would have thought heavy metal would have done it better than talking. <laughs> oh, God, I might hear that myself and I couldn't stand it. No, it's so, just sorry, a tree. Jane. It's a new growth on the magnolia and there's the big, it's a big tree. I can't do anything about it. Anything, you know, I can't get up and do anything about it. No. It's huge. Huge. Yep. But I don't want the top of it all killed off. Oh, no. Uh, and there's no way of pruning the magnolia up and putting a collar around it? Uh, no, I've got other trees. It's an old garden. I've got other trees. Yeah, they, so they, they leap from one to the other. They just mm. come from wherever they want to. Yep. And I've even tried feeding them way down the other side, but that doesn't seem to be working either. Feeding possums is actually generally counterproductive because what happens is they invite their relatives because yes. there's a higher food source oh, for well, them. Oh, uh, well, they're in next door's roof, so he doesn't seem to mind them. So, yeah. Uh, so no, I don't think I'd want them in my roof, I uh, have to no, say. No, I don't either, but no. they're not in mine. They're in his. So. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so yeah, so they are one of those um, difficult problems to yeah. uh, to come yeah. to grips with, and sometimes in the end it comes down to in fact giving up and planting something they won't eat. But then you've got to find the thing they won't eat. Absolutely, <laughs> and that can be difficult. Gum trees generally they don't eat. But, no, you know. they don't. Well, they're not touching that. But it's the magnolia, and it's huge, mm. and you know it's a full grown magnolia, and I don't particularly want the the top of it all dead. No, no, no well, it's very I, sad. I definitely think seven seven four. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'll try that. Actually, Thank if they had you. John Fane 24 hours a day, I reckon that might solve the possible problem. <laughs> oh, no, John's okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank All right. you. Bye. Bye. All right. Well, before we do anything else, because we're nearly finished, somebody's walked in with a piece of paper, and the nursery I was trying to think of is in Heatherton Road, and it's Red Cloud Bamboo. I knew it had red in the name, yes. but I couldn't remember well exactly what it was. So Red Cloud Bamboo. So they're on that side of town. Uh, bamboo Creations are over at Riddles Creek. Uh, I have enough possibly to satisfy someone, but, you know, there's people around that know their bamboos. And I would certainly never buy a bamboo from anybody that didn't really understand what no. they were selling. Exactly. We have run out of time. Stephen, we didn't get to all your plans. Oh, well, but there's time. always next time. Yeah, yep, next time. Yep. Um, a big thank you to... Uh, to Jenny, who's been handling all the calls this morning. We'll, of course, be back next Sunday at 7.30. Until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.